You are listening to a podcast from The National. Publicly, United States President Donald Trump has called for states to take responsibility for their nationals who joined ISIS in Iraq and Syria and returned them home. In the last days of the so-called caliphate, when internationally backed Syrian Kurdish-led forces closed in on the last pocket of the proto-state, tens of thousands of supporters and fighters fled the battlefield. In northern Syria, tens of thousands of women and children are now living in squalid, overcrowded camps. Thousands more military-aged men have been corralled into Kurdish jails. Hundreds of them left their homes in Europe and America to join the militants. Everybody agrees that the situation is unstable, and Kurdish authorities say they can't cope with the scale of the crisis. But Trump's call to action belies a problem that's potentially brewing back home. The US doesn't have a national-level program for de-radicalization or reintegration of extremists. The first port of call for American law enforcement is jail time. But once sentences are served, those convicted are released. With no program tailored to working with those convicted of terror offenses, there are concerns that people are released even if their views haven't changed. Secondly, without post-prison reintegration programs, experts warn that many of the social factors that played a role in why people joined the extremist groups in the first place will only be exacerbated. This problem isn't hypothetical either. As many as 80 individuals in America who were jailed on charges of providing material support for foreign terrorist organizations are eligible for release before 2024 including dozens incarcerated for ISIS-related offences. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young, and this week we're looking at how America handles extremism. A few weeks ago, we looked at Europe's response to its nationals who joined ISIS, and what failing to act now could mean for a resurgence of the group. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, there's a link in the show notes, so you can go back and catch up after this episode. But this week, we'll speak to Stephen Starr, a correspondent with The National, who this week was reporting on small community-led projects in Ohio and Minnesota that are working with small numbers of people arrested for terror offences. We'll also hear from Nikita Malik, director of the Centre on Radicalisation and Terrorism at the Henry Jackson Society in London, to talk about de-radicalisation efforts and what to do about extremism. Then we'll hear from Colin Clark, a senior research fellow at the Sufan Group in New York and author of the book After the Caliphate. He'll tell us about why we shouldn't ignore the ISIS enduring threat and what abandoning foreign fighters could mean. Perhaps the most well-known post-9-11 American terrorist is John Walker Lind. Dubbed the American Taliban, Walker Lind converted to Islam at 16, went to study Arabic in Yemen in the 90s and then travelled to Afghanistan in 2000 where he attended Al-Qaeda training camps and fought with the Taliban against the breakaway Northern Alliance. He was captured soon after the US invasion in November 25, 2001, and indicted in 2002. He was jailed for 20 years in January 2003. In May this year, Walker Lind was released, but authorities were worried that he posed an ongoing concern and he didn't appear to have changed his views. Four years ago, as ISIS slaughtered and raped across Syria and northern Iraq, Walker Lind referred to the terror group as doing a spectacular job, according to KNBC, an affiliate of the American NBC News. A US government report in 2016 said that despite having spent 14 years in a correctional facility, Walker Lind continued to be an advocate for global jihad. Despite this, he was released early for good behaviour. Walker Lind is still monitored by the authorities and accepted a number of bail conditions, but he appears to be one of the few that the government has a post-prison plan for. The Minnesota city of Minneapolis has a 100,000-strong population of Somali-Americans. 
Many young men in recent years have been targeted by online recruiters who tried to convince them to join militant groups such as ISIS and al-Shabaab. Dozens did or tried to do so. Many were arrested while trying to leave the US, and the local community launched the country's first de-radicalization program two years ago to try and help change people's views. Named the Terrorism, Disengagement and Deradicalization Program, it was founded by a senior probation officer. Its core effort focused on establishing a wide network of community support for deradicalization. It focused on the youth and had a significant input and monitoring from families, friends and religious leaders. Stephen Starr spoke to those involved in the program to find out more. There was a court, a, a court probation officer in Minnesota got interested himself in seeing if there was a way of de-radicalizing some of these young people that had been sentenced to terrorist-related offenses. A lot of these young men were being targeted online by recruiters based in various parts of the world, not even in Syria, some of them in, in, also in Somalia too. Also socioeconomic reasons, I guess, as well, behind why um, a lot of these people, these these young men were targeted. You know, their parents were working double jobs. Oftentimes they were perhaps not getting as, as much attention uh, as other, other kids in their community were because as, as second generation immigrants to, to the States, their, their parents were just were doing as much as they could to, to put bread on, on the table. Once these individuals are charged with these offenses, they go through the court system. They identify individuals uh, who have been charged with these extremist offenses. They're interviewed. They're seen which express remorse and guilt, which do not. Those who do not express guilt are deemed not suitable for the program. Those that do are, are move on to a next stage, whereby the court, the judge in charge of each of these individuals, must clear these individuals for release back into their in temporary release back into their, into their community. While in their community, they are expected to partake in certain activities. They're expected to meet with uh, local religious leaders, or they have to keep up contact with local. Uh, courts and, and prison services too. And it's as much, we'll say, you know, the, the family and friends I and mean, religious community around these individuals that they have a, a, a load to bear as well in helping reintegrate each individual back to their communities. It, it struck me as very interesting that there were no national or federal level de-radicalization uh, programs for all of these people that have been sentenced, even since the the, the, the post 9-11 era, I would say, in the last 20 years or so. And so that seems, you know, really incredible to think that there was nothing coming from the federal level. So what we're looking at now in the last, as of the last year, many of their prison terms is 20 years. And so a lot of individuals who were sentenced in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 are due for release. There's talking of upwards of 60 to 80 individuals. Uh, that's one cohort. There's a second cohort of individuals who have been more recently convicted of ISIS-related activities. Are these individuals prepared for reintegrating into, you know, regular society? And the answer seems to be that they're not at all, be, that they are, have not at all been prepared, which is incredibly worrying. Now, there's a number of reasons for that. The U.S. government has a reputation amongst many individuals from immigrant communities, the role of the U.S. government indirectly working with with de-radicalizing and disengaging people who, who have been sentenced on terrorist charges. There's a lot of tension there, right? So there's there's issues there between as to whether these individuals would ever want to work with the U.S. government, which, of course, leads to the point that there should be, you know, or at least that local groups within these individuals' own communities should play a leading role in trying to reintegrate these people as they come out of, out of prison. 
people who are at the cutting edge of de-radicalization efforts across you know, North America and, and Europe and elsewhere. And their point of view is that it seems to be the case with regards to the U.S. authorities that they will not react until something else happens, you know. The Minnesota experiment found that 10 of the 12 individuals selected for the program successfully completed their court-ordered term of supervision. Around a dozen others were considered unsuitable to take part, based on factors including flight risk and a lack of willingness to admit guilt or express remorse. The program has helped a small number of those who showed a willingness to change. But the fact that it was unable to work with some of those who had the most committed extremist views or were the potentially highest threats shows what appears to be the US government approach. Leave them in jail. Stephen spoke to Kevin Lowry, Minnesota's former police chief and architect of the de-radicalization effort there. The program is small, but he said one of the major factors that they're facing is a lack of funding. He travelled to Europe to see what de-radicalization efforts there were doing and pointed to examples in the UK in its multi-million pound PREVENT program. He said it's an example of how government funding can nationalise a counter-extremism effort. But the UK's program has also faced criticism. Indeed, one of the problems that many countries face is that there's no clear, tried and tested formula for how to deal with those who have been radicalised. Nikita Malik from the Henry Jackson Society spoke to us about some of the issues in designing such programmes. The kind of focus on counter-extremism has evolved and changed over the last few years, primarily reflecting um, a change in the appeal of one of the largest terrorist organizations, Islamic State, which had a global appeal through its uh, online media presence and the propaganda that it released. We're seeing a reduction in that appeal, and as a result, the government strategy has consequently changed. So prior to this point, say in, in, in 2014, 2015, the focus was really on prevention. So preventing people from physically traveling to very dangerous zones where war, war was occurring in Syria and Iraq uh, from, from the United Kingdom. So the focus was really on, on prevention and the prevent strategy is uh, one of um, the four strands of the UK government's counterterrorism strategy, but there was a large focus on that primarily because of this aspect of travel, uh, and that involved um, you know, safeguarding duties uh, from, from universities and schools, but also increasing roles of the police in, in monitoring people from going. Now what has happened over the last four years is an increasing focus on, on returnees. So for those who we could not prevent uh, from, from traveling to war zones and joining uh, terrorist organizations, and for those who have not died in those warlike conditions, many of them are now in refugee camps and want to come back to the United Kingdom or have already come back. And the focus is on now uh, what we call de-radicalization and rehabilitation while many of these individuals serve their sentences uh, in jail. So uh, there has been a little bit of a shift in, in, in our priorities, and coupled with this, of course, is, uh, as you know, um, in, in the UK, we had several terrorist attacks uh, in 2015, so there has been an increasing awareness of protection of critical infrastructure and, uh, you know, kind of understanding and knowledge amongst at-risk areas or boroughs um, in, in the UK. So there has been uh, both an increased awareness 
but also a shift in our in our priorities in terms of what is happening in in this counterterrorism or countering violent radicalization space. There's also been a change in recent years in who travelled to join overseas terror groups. With um, previous terrorist organisations, I'm speaking very broadly now, but even the Taliban and, and Al Qaeda. Uh, essentially, it was men who were radicalizing in countries or, or uh, in their home countries and then going to join these efforts. Uh, and many of them w- would die in combat. What we're beginning to see uh, with Islamic State was a appeal to women through propaganda to come and join this state and you know, have children there. And that's precisely what they did. To say that they they may not have committed acts of violence or, or gone out and um, you know actually hurt anyone, but that was because they were not allowed to do so uh, by the Islamic State. They were to stay at home, and their contribution was to create children and provide support to their husbands. But they are not innocent because they joined a terrorist organization and they, at the very least, are are linked to a a very dangerous ideology. And many of them actually subscribe to this ideology like the men do. Uh, They still hold on to very disturbing, dangerous, and problematic beliefs. And to downplay their role in in what happened, uh, certainly in the cases of Western women, whether from the United States, United Kingdom, Europe, there was an active decision to board a plane and, and join these organizations, unlike, say, cases in Iraq and Syria where women were abducted or their families were killed and they were made to join the group. There is a level of agency and intent here that cannot be ignored. And so I wouldn't go so far as to say that they are vulnerable or, or victims because many of them are not. Uh, however, that then makes it very difficult to prosecute and de-radicalize individuals, firstly because there is not much evidence available, and this goes for both the men and the women. Uh, you know, gathering evidence in warlike conditions uh, is very difficult. So one would have to have proper evidence to present against the person in court. And the second is, is the sentence appropriate enough to truly reflect the nature of the crime that has been committed. Now, in the case of women, you know, you're not sentencing the person for violence, but surely a sentence should include essentially the kind of um, treason or the kind of uh, ideas that the person has subscribed to that is, are so fundamentally against the state that they have left um, that they want to commit harm against that state or they want to commit a terrorist attack against that state. So I think the, um, that has to be seriously weighed um, when, when a person is uh, sentenced in the UK, say a returnee or otherwise. And we have very comprehensive terrorism laws, both under our Terrorism Act of 2000 and 2006, that will encompass not just uh, you know, killing in combat or participating in combat, but joining a terrorist organization, prescribing, supporting, sharing terrorist ideas, financing, all of these aspects are very important. And I think, um, you know, the the public opinion, uh, at least in the United Kingdom, has been primarily quite clear that these are not the best conditions for, for people to find themselves in. But a crime has certainly been committed 
and and for that there has to be a level of due process. Nikita said that there's a lot of crossover when dealing with ISIS returnees as there is with far-right extremists. And some of the same programming techniques can be used in both cases. What we're dealing with here is an ideology, a fanatical ideology that often wants is or wants or is associated with extreme violence against a group that doesn't fit in with the ideological belief. So it is actually very difficult to counter an idea. And although we have de-radicalization programs in the UK, there hasn't been enough research or analysis done to display how effective these programs are. And we simply haven't had enough long-term studies to understand whether people have truly de-radicalized or whether they re-offend or still hold on to those ideas and just don't publicly voice them. Now, what is quite useful about our um, prevent strategy or the channel section of the prevent strategy uh, is firstly, it is not mandatory, it is voluntary. So individuals who do engage with it, in some ways do initially want to change. They want to kind of understand what it is that they are prescribing to that is wrong. And many of these people have... um, you know, isolated themselves or, or have surrounded themselves with the same bubble of ideology. So their neighbors or their friends or their inner group all subscribe to the same ideas. So they have never actually interacted with anyone who can counter those ideas or explain to them why it is problematic. So two examples here and broad strokes of what de-radicalization involves is for example, we've spoken about um, you know, an Islamic or Islamist uh, terrorist organization. We do have a big problem in the UK of, of far-right extremism and terrorism as well, though only one organization is officially a prescribed terrorist organization. But we have many cases of people who believe in extreme hatred and violence against minority groups, protected groups, immigrants, etc., and uh, you know, having them refer to the channel program would mean that they have to sit with a mentor or an individual who will explain to them why these ideas are problematic. This person could be a former member of one of these groups whose ideas have changed, and therefore they can provide them with some guidance. And in some cases, it can even be a, 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 a person who, say, a, a Mus- for an example, a Muslim person of color, often the first kind of person this, per, this, this, in, this individual has interacted with outside of their inner group and uh, explaining to them why their racism or their you know, ideas about Islam are wrong. And um, those kind of sessions and that interaction can sometimes be very useful. It can be very useful for the individual because they learn why their ideology is wrong And secondly, because of exposure, they're exposed to ideas that are more to the norm and outside the extreme fringes of acceptable behavior. They no longer want to commit violence uh, against Muslims because they have have had these sessions with a, a Muslim mentor who has actually explained to them or, you know, guided them through why not all Muslims are bad people. So... That kind of de-radicalization is just one part of a, of a multi-step process of which many people are involved in the, le- in, in the individual's you know, development and their ability to reintegrate into society without posing a harm to others. Um, but again, to stress, 
you know, these cases are very confidential. The data is not released to the public space as it shouldn't be because, you know, they want specifics of the case to be uh, kept private. But as a result, it makes it very difficult to measure the effectiveness of of these interactions and whether they make any kind of long-term impact or change. In recent months, several countries have started taking back women and children from the camps in Syria. In April, Kosovo took back over 100 women and children from northern Syria. In June, the US took back eight women and children. Nikita said that although it hasn't publicised the cases, the UK too has some returnees. But it just didn't help them get back. Confidentiality is extremely important. The kind of mentorship that is allowed in the evaluation process has to be kept internal. It has to be within spaces of practitioners and professionals working with individuals one-on-one. Otherwise, the trust will simply not be there. So I think it's incredibly important that this is kept uh, as confidential as possible. And for that, I mean, I would argue that the government itself um, needs to be releasing audits or generic, I wouldn't go into, you know, the in-depth of the cases, but level number of cases, number of successes, they do this to some extent with the number of channel referrals and, and what happens next to Um, to this. They have a level of transparency there. But there could be a level of engagement uh, with researchers. We do have access to open source data. Some of these transcripts um, from the judicial process, at least in the court cases, are made available. So one can determine why judges have made the decisions they have and, and look at the appeals process. Um, so I think there there is a level of research that one can do, but to do longitudinal studies of several years to see how effective a prevent or channel is, one would need to follow the people that uh, practitioners have engaged with for many years to see whether they have reoffended or what their ideologies are. And for that, you know, the, at least the British government needs to have a level of budget and engagement. And as we know, these kind of resources are finite. So that budget would be, uh, you know, given to prevention of, you know, or, or keeping up with individuals rather than, say, something else that, that the Home Office would want to prioritize. So on a different note, we found it incredibly useful. Uh, we have a, a terrorism legislator, and he often pr- produces an audit after a terrorism attack so that the public can understand how agencies worked and areas for improvement. And, and I think that's a remarkable resource to researchers, and something similar could be done for, for, for channel referrals. But it will be a very um, fine balance to strike because you would want to ensure that you protect, the, you know, the um, the identity of the people you work with, while still being able to use unique aspects of their cases uh, to understand where, say, the government could approve, uh, could improve, or or people could engage with this individual more effectively. So what does this all mean for the ISIS members who are still overseas? Well, Colin Clark says the terror group is still a potent threat and governments need to take action now. If you look at what the the Kurdish militias are, they're they're not prison wardens, right? These are fighters. And so they're now being tasked with something completely different than what their uh, initial objective and what most of their training is in. Uh, My concern is that if things heat up with Turkey, uh, that some of these fighters are going to be called to the front and these detainment camps and prisons are going to be left thinly manned. Uh, that's problematic for two reasons. One, it increases the risks of further radicalization because there's fewer resources to take care of the individuals that are currently in these places. Uh, and two, it, it makes them vulnerable to the Islamic State prison break. 
Uh, we've seen this before with the Breaking the Walls campaign. One could easily imagine a situation or a scenario where uh, Kurds are called to go fight against Turkey, leaving these uh, areas uh, undermanned or under-equipped, and, and IS kind of uh, seeming to re-engineer uh, a campaign to break fighters out of these prisons. If you look at the Europeans, there's, there's clearly there's no uniform policy. Not that I'm suggesting there should be. I don't, I'm not sure there should be a European-wide uh, policy because uh, different countries, the threat in Belgium is different than the threat in the UK and, and so on and so forth. But for, uh, you know, the, the EU is highly critical of, of what the U.S. did with Guantanamo um, and now is seemingly kind of washing its hands and walking away uh, from the fight against ISIS, which isn't over and is actually entering one of its most critical phases, which is what, what happens now. Just because the kinetic fighting is done uh, or, or is at least, uh, you know, wound down, what happens next? I mean, why not finish the fight? It's, it's kind of uh, puzzling to a lot of analysts and scholars like myself that are looking at this. So many resources and so much energy was dedicated and devoted toward crushing the Islamic State. So, so why not finish the job by delivering justice uh, to those you know, who, who have committed crimes there and, and walking down that path of uh, real rehabilitation or reintegration for foreign nationals. Uh, you know, despite a lot of tough talk from, from President Trump, uh, there are Americans that joined ISIS that are quietly returning uh, back to the U.S. Um, there was two women and six minors uh, that, that were returned back in early June. Uh, Robin Wright wrote about that in, in New Yorker. And so um, I think the at least for now, a, a lot of this has kind of been hush-hush. Um, there hasn't been a lot of publicity surrounding it. But it does not look, at least at the present time, for, uh, from what I can surmise, that, that Gitmo seems to be um, an option that the U.S. is pursuing. Because this kind of lack of battlefield evidence, or even where this evidence might exist, it might be too weak to pass muster in a European uh, court of law. Uh, but that's not an excuse, right? I mean, that's just really, to me... That, uh, that's a line that a politician would use in order to swap off responsibility. Um, but but I think we have to work within those parameters and um, you know continue to kind of move forward. And uh, look, there's no good options here. It's, it's figuring out what the the best of several bad options is. And and I don't think the best of several bad options is leaving these people to kind of linger in camps. We've been talking about these issues for years, right? Because most folks re- realized it was an inevitability. Uh, that the caliphate would be crushed. And so we've had time to, to think about this and to prepare for this. It's not easy, right? Um, and so uh, rather than deal with it, it's a, it's a matter of just kind of, again, to use the, the, the phrase kicking the can down the road and letting it be someone else's problem. It's a matter of expedience, uh, and so, especially from a political point of view, which even though I don't agree with it, you can, you can understand. You would expect politicians uh, not to want to deal with this. Uh, but it's very myopic. It's a totally short-sighted approach to what could produce really long-term damaging effects, not only in, in the Middle East, but also back home in Europe. Thanks to my guests this week, Colin Clark at the Sufan Group in New York, Stephen Starr in Dayton, Ohio, and Nikita Malik in London. This was Beyond the Headlines. Subscribe to the program by tapping the subscribe button in the podcast app. Follow more of our coverage online at thenational.ae. We were produced this week by Aisha Khan and Hannah Finity. I've been your host, James Haynes-Young. <laughs>